in the initial teachings on this very subject, we said that God framed the creation of mankind with, this, with an oath or a covenant that he had sworn to himself, by which oath he claims that we would be his sons. And this then makes the covenant a covenant of promise. That means that we who are the beneficiaries benefit from a certain promise. So the question is, what is this promise? To come at it from a slightly different angle, the book of Romans, the 8th chapter, says about the middle of it, as many as are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Then if we are sons, then are we also heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. In the book of Galatians, the third chapter, and going on into the fourth chapter, it speaks to us about how we are the sons of God, and because we are sons, God has also made us heirs. An heir is that which particularly attends being a son. A son has a right to an inheritance. So when the scriptures speak about the fact that we are neither Jew nor Greek, bond or free, male or female, first it's speaking about the fact that God is the father of our spirits. But in right after that, it says, and if you are sons, this is of course Galatians 4, if you are sons, uh, excuse me, Galatians 3 right at the end of the chapter, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. An heir. Who is an heir? We pointed out that an heir is one who has a right of inheritance. An heir, by definition, is a third-party beneficiary. means he's not party number one, he's not party number two. But because of the covenant that exists between parties one and two, that a promise then comes out of that that uniquely benefits him. In that capacity, he's a third party and he is an heir. Simple enough to understand in the context of a marriage between a husband and a wife to which children are born. The children are not party number one, they're not party number two. That's the husband and the wife. They are party number three. And their status is that of heirs. Heirs. They get to inherit their parents' estate at the time when their parents are gone. If you are an heir, by definition, you do not work for your inheritance. You simply get it. It's what it means to be an heir. An heir does not work for his inheritance. My children are my heirs and didn't have to do anything but show up. That's what it means to be an heir. God has made us heirs. We are sons and heirs. So our inheritance is not anything we work for. Our inheritance is what our Father gives us because He is our Father. 
the strength, the depth, the extent of any inheritance has to do with the nature and goodwill of your father. It doesn't have anything to do with you. It's what you get. In a sense, it's all free in that you do not work for it. What do you get as an heir of God? Well, here's what the scriptures say. You get everything that is necessary for life and godliness while you're here on this earth. And in the coming ages, eyes have not seen, ears have not heard, it hasn't entered into the mind of a man what God has in store for those who love him. But now it's being revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. So being an heir of God has benefits now and in the future. In terms of present benefits, it's inclusive. What you get as an heir is not limited to what you get when you die. It's imperative that you understand that. That as an heir of God, there are things for you now, in this life. And in this life, the sum total of those things is said to be all that is needful for life and godliness. Paul put it this way when he wrote to Philemon. He said, may you prosper and be in good health even as your soul prospers. And... Other writers have, have used such language as that you will have no need of anything, but that on every occasion you will have abundantly to supply all the needs. I want to move into this area of money as part of the inheritance of the sons of God. Because in understanding the role of money, you really begin to understand something about how you have been changed from being a slave to a son and what that means. Jesus put it this way in Matthew. In the sixth chapter of Matthew, Jesus said, Take no thought for the morrow, for the morrow will take thought of the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. And do not say, do not concern yourself about what you will eat, what you will drink, or wherewithal you will be clothed. He said, because the Gentiles seek after these things. But if you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all these things shall be added unto you. That's the idea of having an inheritance. That your inheritance is sufficient for every requirement for life and godliness. Part of our problem, of course, is that we tend to want resources without having a particular purpose for them. We tend to want to store up money resources so that we don't have to trust God. So what an absurdity. May God grant us this, that we are never to be found in a place where we do not need to have a relationship of trust with our Father. May God grant us that. Because it doesn't matter how much money you have, 
if you've outgrown your need to trust God, then you'd better hope that you're seeing him face to face. Because it, otherwise it means that you've stopped growing as a believer. We have this desire to supply for ourselves and to use God only as the basis of that supply. And we call that a blessing. We, we look at that as how God blesses us. No, money should be as is needed to carry out the purposes for which God has called you. And beyond that, and particularly if God gives you a lot of money, and he may, God may give you a lot of money, pray that you have as great a gift, an endowment from God, of the gift of giving. Because money without the grace to give is no pleasure, it's no burden, and it will, it, it will corrupt your heart. It, the love of money corrupts you in this way. You begin to think that money is the answer to anything. And you fail to see that it is God who is the answer to everything. And he may at times provide a solution through money. But he is the solution. However he chooses to supply a solution, that's his to do. Money is never the answer to anything. Money is only the answer when previous to that God is the answer and directs money in a particular way. But if you hear Christians today pray, what do they ask God for? They ask God to protect the nation, whatever their nation might be. They ask God also to keep their enemies from harassing them. So they ask for their personal safety and the safety of their children. Then they ask for economic security, having good jobs, good earnings, and they ask for health benefits, that God will protect their health. Four things. The exact four things that God promised the Jews under the law. Under the law, God made them into a nation. God protected them from their enemies. God secured their finances and gave them health. None of the diseases of Egypt. If that's all we want from God, we're bargaining as slaves. Why do people tithe? Now the tithe is something that's found in the scriptures. Why do people tithe? They tithe in the hope that God will bless America or the nation that they're in. They tithe in the hope that God will protect them and their children, their households. They tithe in the hope that God will continue to bless them with financial, financially rewarding jobs and or businesses. And they tithe hoping that their health would remain intact. This is the mentality of slaves. Some say, well of course there is no tithe, you don't have to tithe. Let me show you something from the Old and New Testaments and I'll come down to the question of why do you tithe? Because this is a critical factor in understanding your inheritance. You may either understand your inheritance 
as a slave and relate to God as a slave, or you may understand your inheritance as a son and relate to God as a son. Now, Melchizedek, you will recall, in Genesis, the 14th chapter, offered the tithe to Abraham. Here it is. I'm going to move very quickly as I lay up this foundation. In uh, Genesis, the 14th chapter, it says, Verse 18, then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who delivered you from your enemies. Then Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. Now, for most people, that's the origin of the tithe. But I would suggest to you that it is not. And I'd like to to cite this other example from the 28th chapter of the book of Genesis. 28.18 This story now is about Jacob who awakes the next morning after spending the night in a place called Luz and he then renames the place Bethel which means the house of God. Early the next morning, verse 18, Genesis 28. Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar, poured oil on top of it. He called the place Bethel. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I'm taking, and give me food to eat and clothes to wear, so that I return to my father's house, then the Lord will be my God. This stone that I've set up, as a pillar will be God's house, and of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. So, Jacob, who's known in scripture for getting a good deal and tries to get one here, offers to give God a tenth. Where did he learn that from? I would suggest to you that it was the normal practice in antiquity for the tenth, the tithe, to be given to that ancient priesthood that we spoke about earlier, called the Order of Mel- which came to be known as the Order of Melchizedek, but was originally known as the Sons of God. Now, as you look at uh, Hebrews, which brings this forward into the New Testament, you clearly see that the tithe is part of the New Testament. And here it is. Verse 4, Hebrews 7. Just think how great Melchizedek was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now the law requires that the descendants of Levi who become priests to collect a tenth from the people, that is their brothers, even though their brothers are descended from Abraham. So under the law, Quite literally, under the law, the Levitical priests collect from their brothers, though they all descended from Abraham, they collected a tenth. But, uh, this man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi. Melchizedek was not a descendant of Levi. Yet, 
he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. So he collected the tenth from Abraham and he blessed Abraham who was the one who had the promises. And verse 7 says, And without doubt, the lesser person is blessed by the greater. In one case, the tenth is collected by those who die. What case is that? That's the Levitical order. But in the other case, what case is that? The order of Melchizedek. Are we under Levi? No. Are we under Melchizedek? Yes. Jesus is the high priest of the order of Melchizedek. That order is in existence today and there is a place to collect the tenth under that order. Right? And in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. So the tithe is taught in the New Testament and it is part of the order of Melchizedek. One might even say that Levi who collects the tenth paid the tenth through Abraham because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. Now the only way this wouldn't apply is if the order of Melchizedek did not exist. But it does. You are a priest, you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Whoever is a son of God is a royal priest because we have an order of royal priests. It's called the order of Melchizedek and Jesus is the high priest of that order. Okay? The fact is this was the order that existed prior to the law, 430 years prior to the law. And this is the, this is the covenant that has promises to it. Well, if you're not collecting the tenth, if you're not paying the tenth, to secure the nation that you, that you belong to, to secure your national origins, if you're not giving the tenth to, to protect your household and your family, if you're not giving the tenth to secure your finances, and you're not giving the tenth to secure your health, then why are you giving it? Why are you giving it? If you give it for these reasons... The, the four reasons I've enumerated, you're giving it as under the law. Church leaders routinely manipulate the people to give the tenth with these exact four arguments. Their failure, however, is to acknowledge that that's the bargain of slaves. If you are a son and you have a right of inheritance... Your right of inheritance does automatically include all these things, whether or not you tithe. Why then do you tithe? Let me uh, back into my answer. God has given us great symbols to celebrate eternal truths. For example, we have, the, we have baptism as a symbol that celebrates a great eternal truth. What exactly does baptism celebrate? Well, look at, look at what it is. Jesus comes to John to be baptized by John in the River Jordan. John says that he needs to be baptized by Jesus and 
But Jesus says to him, it becomes us, you and me, to fulfill all of the requirements of righteousness. And so John baptizes him. All of this occurs right after Jesus said to John, or John said to Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is called the Lamb by John. And John changes history when he acknowledges that Jesus is the Lamb. Now who is John? John, John's father is Zechariah. Zechariah offers sacrifices in the temple. That means that as his son, John also was qualified to offer the sacrifices under the Levitical order. He would have only been disqualified for, for impurity of person or some physical blemish. But none of those appear to be the case. So John was fully able to offer a sacrifice under the law. Now, Jesus comes to John as one who is qualified under the law to offer sacrifice. John has just declared that Jesus is the Lamb. He's not a Lamb. He is the Lamb, the one who takes away the sins of the world. So he's not just a sacrifice. He is the sacrifice. John, Jesus comes to John who is fully qualified under the law to offer the sacrifice. Now, under the Levitical Code, the priests were required to wash the sacrifice before they offered it. That's Leviticus chapter 1. So, Jesus comes to John. John declares, you are the lamb. Jesus said, you are the priest. I'm under this law. You wash me so that I may be sacrificed. Baptism is a washing that acknowledges that you have been separated from this world, from the control of the God of this world, so that you might be offered to God as a living sacrifice. So Paul says to the Romans in Romans 12:1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies living sacrifices, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Baptism saves us in that sense. It's not about salvation from going to hell. It's about saving us out of the control of the God of this world so that we might be offered to God as a living sacrifice. Therefore, should, does baptism save us from going to hell? No. Should we be baptized? Of course. When you understand it, we're washed to be sacrificed. We're separated from the world that we might be offered to God. That's what baptism is. The Lord's Supper celebrates this great symbol of how we have been raised with Christ and that we have the anticipation of being seated with Him in heavenly realms and participating in the final day in the wedding supper of the Lamb. Should we partake of the Lord's Supper? Of course. That's what God gives us to celebrate our resurrection from the dead and to celebrate our future as the bride of Christ. Should we partake? Of course. Is this valuable to us? Definitely. How is it valuable to us? It puts us in the remembrance of one of these incredible truths of the scriptures. 
What then is the tithe? The tithe is the way that God has given us by which to celebrate the fact that we are sons. Because we have an inheritance. And it's not something you work for. It's not something that goes away because you don't give it. Give it. It's permanent. Because you are a son. Your son, you as a son of God, should not be concerned about your daily bread. That's your father's concern. You should not be concerned about maintain, the maintaining of your health. That's your father's concern. I'm not saying that you should live any way you want to. But I'm saying you should not feel like you have to beseech God to watch over your health or your finances. You, you do not have the wage of a slave. You're not trying to get something. As a son, you have a right of inheritance and it is sufficient for all you need in this life, for life and for godliness. I'm Sam Solon. God bless you. We'll continue this discussion. Bye-bye.